Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you this morning and we glorify you. And we recognize that you are the God of heaven, Lord, that you sit on your throne in heaven. You have made everything for your own purpose and everything exists for the purpose for which you made it. And that, Lord, you are providentially in control over your world and that you are certainly bringing this world to the end for which you created it, an expected end, an end of which you have uh, disclosed to us in your holy word and revealed to us by your spirit. We praise you and we worship you and we value you, God. We recognize that we are your creatures, the work of your hands, that our life only exists because of you, God. That you give us our life and our breath and everything we have. Help us this morning to properly revere you for who you are, God. May we fear your holy name. And Lord, may we long to be your holy people washed by the precious blood of Jesus and cleansed. May our hearts be pure before you, Lord. And Lord, where they're not, wash us by your word. Cause your love to abound in us, God. May we be a loving people, God. May our hearts and our lives be dominated by your love. We thank you for who you are, and we praise you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen. Okay, so we are off and running again here in 1 Thessalonians. We have made it to chapter 3, verse 11, which is where we'll be starting this morning, the middle of page 33 on your handouts. And just to kind of bring you up to speed, you remember in chapter 3, this is where we find out that Timothy actually made a successful trip back to Thessalonica. There he was encouraged to find out that the, the young church was thriving, that God had done a very powerful and amazing thing among them. And uh, he was uh, so encouraged to come back to Paul and Silas in Athens and to tell them of what had happened in the church. <clears throat> because of this, the apostles were rejoicing. They were praising God because they had left behind this little baby church in Thessalonica, and that little baby church was under severe persecution. And, of course, Paul was run out of town. The scene was not good at all. And their hearts were broken over these young Christians who were they were leaving behind with no one to encourage them and strengthen them and teach them except for themselves. And um, when they got news that the church had actually thrived, not only had they thrived, they had become gospel preachers in every part of their world. And so when the apostles found this out, they were overjoyed. They were filled with joy. And they were praising God because of it. Verse 9, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? They're just jumping for joy. 
And they are very thankful for what God has done. In fact, they are without words. What thanks can we render to God in return for what God has done among you? Um, I was speaking last week of what an encouragement this must have been to Paul in his ministry because he just constantly faced so much opposition. And uh, I, I know what it's like to be a preacher, but I don't really know what it's like to be a preacher who faces much opposition because I really haven't faced much opposition. I, I mean, I do to some degree here and there, now and again, but it's very minor compared to being dragged outside the city and beaten half dead uh, more times than you can count on both hands and feet. Um, I really don't know what Paul was going through, but I can guarantee you he needed constant encouragement from God. And I think that this news of what had happened was a tremendous encouragement uh, for them to see what God is doing and to, to see the supernatural nature of what happened because there's really no explanation for what happened in the Thessalonian church, humanly, naturally speaking, except that God was supernaturally there by his power in, in, uh, in not only keeping this church in the faith, but causing them to just abound with fruit and abound with love. He commends them twice in this first book alone for their love that they had. And um, it, it's just a, a very encouraging thing, I think, for the apostles to hear what God had done. And it is a manifestation of the glory of God's power in the church. You look at what happened to the church and you say, that is amazing. God is amazing. What God does in the church is a supernatural, amazing thing. How could these Christians exist in this situation that they were in? Having so little knowledge and so little experience in the faith and yet standing under much opposition and bearing so much fruit. It really is an amazing thing. So that kind of brings us up to speed. The apostles get news of uh, the encouraging visit that Timothy had in Thessalonica. He finds out that they were strong in the faith, that they were strong in God's love. And um, so then here at the end of chapter 3, he, he kind of begins to utter a prayer, if you will, in the writing of his letter. And he says, verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Here see Paul's knowledge of who gives us such privileges as where we go and when, and who is responsible for guiding and directing the steps of the wicked and the godly. Think about what Paul's saying in his prayer. Now may God direct our way to you. He's asking can God help us get there? You see, he's longing to be with them. And he, if you will, he prays and he asks for this blessing. May God and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May you remember he had mentioned the hindering of Satan in the, in the previous verses. He said, he said, we tried to come to you, but Satan hindered us. Remember that? And, and, and so now he's, he's still longing to be with them. And he still wants to go, and so he kind of utters a prayer. May God direct our way to you. But in so doing, think about what he's saying. He's saying it's within God's power for us to go to Thessalonica. Regardless of what Satan wants to hinder. If God should so grant it, we shall come to see you. 
Amen? Are you with me? And he properly recognizes God's providence. He properly recognizes that God is in control of what? Something as simple as where we go and when we go. Are you with me? This is a great truth that is contained in these few little words in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. The knowledge of God's providence in our lives should be the constant backdrop of our daily affairs, being always and ever mindful of his guiding power and gracious love, sustaining our very lives. Of this providence, Paul wanted to make it clear to the Thessalonians who was governing his ability to come and visit and seeks their understanding that he wouldn't be coming until our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Paul seeks by this statement for the young church to understand who is in control, even of such simple things as to where and when we travel to conduct our daily affairs. In the words of James, the Lord's brother, a failure to acknowledge this providence is a boasting of an evil sort. In James 4, he writes, verse 13 and following, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there or engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You understand what James is saying? For us to say, you know what? Hey, tomorrow we're going to go to Santa Fe. And when we get up there, we're going to do some business and we're going to do this and that. And, uh, and that's what we're going to do. Well, James says that that is boasting and that it is evil. Why? Because it fails to recognize that God is in control of our life. And we're only going to go to Santa Fe and do what we want to do if the Lord is willing. Are you with me? You always wonder why certain Christians say, if the Lord is willing. That's why. They're trying not to be proud. They're trying not to be boastful by saying that they will do thus and so without God's approval. Are you with me? They're simply trying to acknowledge that God is the one who's providentially in control over our lives. That's what a Christian means when they say, if the Lord wills. Learn here. You live and move and have your being at the mere pleasure of God, who gives you your life and breath and all things that you have. Failure to acknowledge this great truth is to misunderstand one of the most basic elements of your life and existence on earth, that God is the one who determines the number of your days, the prosperity of your pursuits, and the very circumstances that grip your life from day to day. And if you think that maybe I'm overstating that, I have listed out a whole list of scriptures that you can look up and you will see that the statement I made there is exactly consistent with what the scripture teaches about God's providence. Or we could simply talk about Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 27, where the Bible says the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, 
Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You understand what that says about God? Not only does he give life and breath and everything that you have, but that he made everything. And number two, listen, of all the nations that have lived on the earth, listen, God has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God is the one that decides when a nation shall be raised up and when a nation shall be torn down. It happens by his decree. God is the one that raises up leaders and God is the, lead, the one that deposes leaders. Men think in the arrogance of their heart that they're self-made, not realizing that everything they have is a gift from God. Are you with me? Who can think of a perfect example of that in the Old Testament? Nebuchadnezzar. He is the man that gives us clear insight into who it is and how it is that God raises up men in position and deposes them. And fortunately, in his case, raises them up again. It's interesting, the thing that finally got through with Nebuchadnezzar was that it was until he humbled his heart before the Lord. And that was God's judgment against him. You shall go like a wild animal. And for seven years, the dew of heaven shall fall upon you until you humble yourself and acknowledge that the God of heaven is the king of the earth. Right? This, of course, after Nebuchadnezzar had been boasting greatly about building the great city of Babylon, which, by the way, if you've ever read in history, you would be stunned at what a sight the city of Babylon was under Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Uh, it, It was an amazing thing. The walls were 300 feet high and 75 feet thick that went all the way around the city of Babylon that covered a very great area. And um, this great city that he had made, he was boasting over, and uh, he went through this little humbling circumstance with God. And uh, he was humbled by God. Let me tell you, you don't want to be humbled by God. So you better humble yourself that he may lift you up in due time. Amen? Okay. Uh, So that brings us to verse 12. And may the Lord, see he's praying for God, may God direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as also we do for you. As Paul was longing to return to Thessalonica and complete what was lacking in their faith, verse 10, here he prays for the same. But in so doing, he touches on the essential nature of Christian sanctification. That is, the increase of God's love in the life of the believer. I think this is just a fabulous prayer for the church. You know, if you pray for the church, if you pray for our church, whatever church, the church universal, pray this prayer. That the Christians would abound in love. 
Family, this is what we lack so greatly. Are you with me? Let us grow in it. Let it be the thing that consumes our life to love God and to love others. Amen? This desire of Paul for them to complete what lacks would surely be fulfilled if in fact they would increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. The idea here is that the agape love, of course the word love here is the word agape, which is in their hearts by the Holy Spirit would grow and enlarge and overflow, that they would increase in selfless sacrifice and abound in patience and kindness and all the other fruits and habits in which true Christian love consists. This is the great goal and pursuit of the Christian's life and the sum of the whole Bible as the Lord commanded us to fulfill. In Matthew 22 and verse 36, they come to the Lord Jesus and they ask him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Here's what Jesus means. Take the whole Bible. Of course, in his day, that was the Old Testament. There was no New Testament when he said this. Take the whole Bible. Here's what it means. Love God with everything that is within you and love your neighbor as yourself. You understand? The very essential nature of what Christianity is, is love. Because love is the very nature of God himself. Amen? Of this love, William Burkitt comments, Still our apostle perseveres in prayer on the behalf of his beloved Thessalonians. And the particular mercy he prays for is their abundant increase in the grace and duty of love. First among themselves and their fellow brethren in Christ, all Christians far and near, Next, towards all men, heathens and infidels, their bitter and bloody persecutors not accepted. Think about what this must mean to the Thessalonians. That they would abound in love toward all people, the very people who've got their rear end in the fire every day. Are you with me? He goes on. Where note the true property of Christian love, it is, number one, a brotherly affection which every true Christian chiefly bears to all his fellow members in Christ for grace's sake. And two, a gracious propensity of heart, which a Christian bears for God's sake to all mankind, whereby he wills, and to his power procures all good for them. Here we see how much room we have to grow in love, not only for one another, but also for all people a task which we would be impossible for them and us without the aid of God's Spirit. Consider that they were under much affliction and severe persecution from their fellow countrymen, who Paul here commands them to increase and abound, to increase and abound in love towards. Paul is, is saying, may God cause you to increase and abound in love. This is your focus. This is your goal. This is your objective. May God work these things in you. He says to them, now what, what, a, what a startling thing this must be. Paul doesn't say, 
Here, he doesn't say, oh, I can't wait till God comes in vengeance and crushes your enemies. Although he will say that when things are a little worse. And he writes in 2 Thessalonians, again, to encourage them, chapter 1. However, here, he is saying, he's hoping that God will cause their love to abound, even toward their vicious persecutors. This is not a new teaching, but an essential teaching for all Christians, first intimated by our Lord in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verses 43 and following, the Lord speaks and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, What do you do more than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the Lord Jesus here tells us that we're to love our enemies. Amen? This is why Jesus is so set apart from every other teacher who ever spoke. Who would say such a thing, much less do such a thing? For wasn't it your sin and my sin that nailed him to the tree? And yet the ultimate love, the ultimate sacrifice, he would so love us. Amen? The supreme example of this love was our Lord himself as he hung on the cross at the hands of his deadly persecutors and prayed for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Further, it is by this evidence that all men know that we are Christ's disciples, John 13, 35, and also with this agape love abounding in our life, all our spiritual gifts and service are nothing and meaningless. Listen, if we don't have this kind of love, our message is empty because we're not a demonstration of it. Are you with me? Everything that we do and everything that we say if it's not seasoned with the love of God, it's rendered powerless. And oh, how I have seen this in my own life as an immature Christian and and wanting so much to have an impact in others' lives, but my own life, not the testimony it ought to be. Are you with me? And how often I have encouraged somebody in the word only to the next day fail them in my own behavior. Are you with me? And so we long to have the love of God season everything we do. Amen? I'm not going to let my past regrets, my past failures and the regret of it keep me from loving tomorrow. Are you with me? Tomorrow's a new day. Amen? It's a new day to love. It's a new day to serve. It's a new day to be filled with God's joy. Are you with me? John 13:34 and following Jesus says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another Isn't that interesting Jesus says what's going to make other people know that your faith is genuine is what love Amen 
Listen to what Paul says. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men, 1 Corinthians 13, and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. In fact, this love, says Paul, is a debt we owe to all men and also the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Again, in other words, the meaning of the Bible is what? Love your neighbor. Listen, he who has loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Amen? Amen. James 2.8 If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. There, James also says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Amen? Or Galatians 5, verses 13 and following, For you were called to freedom, brethren, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but what? Through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Amen? You see the contrast? Loving and serving one another, or biting and devouring one another? Amen? You want to know what love looks like? looks like serving one another. And when you do it, guess what? You fulfill the law. In other words, you do what God commanded. Indeed, the love of God is our chief pursuit and will not yet become full and abounding in us until we have died to our own self-will and self-love. But rather, it is a focus of benevolence toward others. Think about that. I don't know if you th- what, in what terms you think about love, but, but love is something that is selfless. Love is something that is, is focused on the good of others. Love is focused on what brings the highest good. Are you with me? It may not always appear to be the thing that loves others. For example, I'll give you an example. Discipline. Disciplining a child. <laughs> now, I'm going to give you this spanking because I love you. Yeah, right. (laughs) Love doesn't always appear to be the thing that is for the highest good, right? But God's kind of love is always that kind of love. It, It is always love which is focused on the highest good of its object. Are you with me? So I'm saying this love will not become full and abounding. You see what he's praying for? I I pray that the Lord will cause you to increase and abound in love. 
Do you have this on your radar, family? Is this what you're living for? That you would increase and abound in love? That's what was Paul's desire for these Thessalonians, and it's God's desire for you. That you would increase in love, that you would abound in love. That when somebody looks in your life, they say, that is a loving person. Why? Because that's how you live. You live your life in love. Amen? Are you with me? This is our goal. This is what we live for. This is what it means to be a Christian. And you can't do it until you kill the love of yourself. You've got to put yourself aside. You've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus if you want to love people. You've got to be willing to make sacrifice. You've got to be willing to take risks to love people. Are you with me? Calvin writes, and he says, He would have the Thessalonians abound in love and be filled with it, because insofar as we make progress in acquaintance with God, the love of the brethren must at the same time increase in us until it take possession of our whole heart, the corrupt love of self being extirpated. Think about that. Here's Calvin, the wise man, telling us that we Christians must increase in love to one another. But look what he says. It won't happen until you get rid of what? The corrupt love of self. Amen? So is the nature of love. Love is a benevolent disposition toward others and a commitment to it. Amen? Would that our life were seasoned with the good fruits of the Spirit as this is the true substance of the Christian faith and the rule by which we judge ourselves and measure the reality of our own true faith. Don't fool yourself. Are you truly a person of love? Colossians 3, Paul writes, he says, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord has forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Amen? You see what we're called to, family? Listen, it's not a list of legalistic rules. It's letting your character become the character of Christ. It's letting your heart be changed so that in you lives the very virtue and goodness of God. So that when you think about things, you're compassionate. When you think about things, you're gentle and patient and humble and kind. That that's the longing of your heart. To be like God. To have His virtue living in you so that you live and are His virtue. Are you with me? That He comes and lives and reigns. And listen, when He reigns, listen, He's the King of love. He's the Prince of Peace. Why should we take up the sword? When the Lord rules our heart, He's the Prince of Peace. He wants to make peace. He doesn't want to fight. Lay down the sword. 
Have some compassion. Don't you realize why you're fighting? Your heart is full of self-love. You're only concerned with your own interest. Deny yourself. Put your lusts aside. Focus on others. Esteem them as more highly than yourself. Esteem them as more important than yourself. Love others. Serve them. Care for them. Meet their needs. You have nothing to lose. What are you going to lose if you make a sacrifice? Some worldly thing? Your time? What, what, what are you giving up to love and serve others? God help us. Here then is the simple golden rule by which the Lord has told us to govern and judge our own hearts and motives. Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. For this is the law and the prophets. But also notice that the chief agent in this abounding love is God. He is the one who fires love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. Love is in fact the fruit of the Spirit and is the true evidence of a Christian's profession of Christ as Lord and that one has truly been born again by God's Spirit of love which lives within. This then is why the Apostle prays, God would cause the abounding increase of love in these dear saints. Why? Why does Paul pray that? Because he realizes God must be the one who does it. And he's crying out for God to fill them with love and to be a people of love. Not only this, but Paul also here sets forth himself as their example, saying, just as we also do for you. You see, Paul was pointing back to himself. He was talking about this increasing and abounding love and saying, we apostles, we have this toward you, pointing to himself as an example. This was manifested before them as Paul made great sacrifices for the people as having not previously known them, risked his life and sacrificed his own skin to bring them the gospel in the midst of much affliction and deadly persecution. Let me tell you, Paul's service to the Thessalonians was a demonstration of his love to them. If Paul was concerned about his own skin, he wouldn't have been there preaching the gospel. Amen? Well, he goes on, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. Think about this. Tie this in with, with verse 12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. Let me turn that around. How will your heart be established without blame in holiness? As you increase and abound in love toward one another and toward all people. Amen? You see that? You see what Paul is saying? as he prays here? When Paul says, so that, he looks to what he previously said about the Thessalonians abounding in love. 
If indeed the Lord causes them to abound in love for one another and for all people, this provides the basis for him to establish your hearts without blame in holiness. Paul here is praying for their continued growth in the Christian faith and maturity, particularly here that their inner man would be purified, asking that he may establish your hearts. Now think about what Paul's praying for. He's not saying... Uh, you know, I hope you guys will begin to practice and demonstrate your love by giving them a big long list of things they ought to do for one another. That's not what he's praying for. What's he praying for? He's praying that their heart would be changed. He's praying that inside their inner being, they would have love dominating and living in their heart. That their desire, their longing would be to love. Because he knows this truth. That Christians will love others. Christians will love one another if love dominates their heart. If their intentions are loving, if their thoughts are loving, then they will love practically. But it has to live in the heart. We can't just do things with our hands and expect that that's pleasing to God if our heart's not in it. Are you with me? It's like this, you know, wife, why do you love and serve your husband? Husband, why do you love and serve your wife? Is it so that they'll be the cooperative person you want them to be? Or is it so that you'll get the thing that you want out of the marriage that you're after? Corrupt. Corrupt love. That's not love. That's narcissism. You with me? I'm sorry to be so direct and forward. Really, I'm not at all. I hope hope that if you have those kind of motivations, that this really pierces right into your heart. I'm sorry. I I, I always say I'm sorry. and, And you know what? I got corrected about 14 times by a bunch of loving saints. He said, now don't you be sorry for preaching the word. <clears throat> so I'm still trying to learn. But I, I mean this. I mean this. Why do you love and serve your husband? Why do you love and serve your wife? Is it because you want their highest good? Is it because your heart is so disposed toward them? You want their life to be comfortable? You want their life to be peaceful? You want their life to be filled with joy? You want them to be uh, content in their relationship with you? Is that why you serve them? Because you want their good? Not only that, what sacrifices do you make toward that end? Are you sacrificing your time? I know husbands, this is a thing for husbands, right? Come home from work all day, what do you want to do? Well, you want to go off in your cave and do your thing, right? And you know what your wife needs? You need to sit down. On the First, you need to embrace her. Hello, honey, I love you. Kiss her, right? You're wonderful. You're marvelous. I love you, dear. You're the most important thing in my life. I am so glad we are reunited on this day. Right? And then you need to sit down. You need to listen to that woman. She's got a lot to tell you. (laughs) But you don't want to do that. Why? Well, you don't want to sacrifice your time. Why? Because your time is your time. Your attention. You don't want to give her your attention. Why? Because it's your attention. And you want to give it to the things you want to give it to. Well, guess what? She has a need. So when are you going to learn 
that she has this need. What is it? She wants you to engage sincerely in your heart what her concerns and what her day was like. She wants to, you to embrace her love and receive it and, and, uh, and intimate with her about that. You understand? You know, you can't do that if you're loving yourself. You have to give of yourself, your time, your attention, your engagement. Remember the vow you made back there? You said you were going to love her, right? I'm explaining what that looks like. Wife, why do you love and serve your husband? You thought about that? Think about it. I want you to think about it this week. What sacrifices do you make to that end? Test the love that's in your heart. Is it real? Is it the kind of love that God has? Is it the agape love of God? A love that's focused on their benefit and on their highest good and willing to make sacrifice for it? Are you with me? It's awful quiet. (laughs) It's not easy, is it? It's not easy to love. The flesh doesn't want to love. It's not easy to kill the flesh. That's what you got to do if you want to love. That's what Calvin was telling us. Until you kill the flesh, until you kill the self-love, until you kill that narcissistic heart of yours, you can't love and serve others. But when you do, I want to tell you there is freedom and there is joy. There is no lasting joy in serving yourself. That leads to misery. Right? Do you love and you serve others? Let me tell you, it is far better to give than it is to receive. Amen? Well then, consider what a heart is like that is without blame in holiness before our God and Father. Paul is here praying for their complete sanctification. Abounding love, verse 12, and pure hearts without blame and holiness, verse 13. Expressions of what completed sanctification looks like in the Christian life. Now, you know, that's maybe a bunch of technical theological things I'm saying to you, but I want you to consider. I'm going to repeat it. Paul is here praying for their complete sanctification. You understand what that is? It's the process whereby God is making you like him. He's praying for that. And in so doing, this is what he prays for, that their love would abound and increase toward one another and toward all people, and that they would have established hearts without blame in holiness before God, that their hearts would be pure, genuine, real. Are you with me? These are expressions of what completed sanctification looks like in the Christian life. Here's what I want you to get out of this. This is the goal of your life as a Christian. That your life would abound and increase with love toward your brother Christians and your sister Christians and toward all people. And that your heart would be without blame in holiness before God. In here, family, in the dark closet of your heart, where nobody else sees but Christ. Are you with me? That is the goal of our life. 
It's to purify our hearts before God and to have his love abounding and increasing in our life. Amen? Say amen if you know that's true. Here then is expressed the goal and objective of our growth and maturity as Christians. We are pressing on to abounding love and pure and holy hearts. Know for sure that true religion is that which is pure in heart, where no one sees but God. If your heart and thoughts be pure, then you are pure indeed. Here also, see that people's hearts are before our God and Father, who searches hearts and minds in order to test the moral purity of our hearts. Which moral purity pleases him and the opposite wickedness does both repel and disgust him. God is frequently seen in the Bible as the one who searches the heart and tests the mind seeking for purity of heart in order to render judgment according to deeds, deeds being the overflow of what is in the heart. Even Christ himself is said to do this in the New Testament. Consider 1 Chronicles 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Why? For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Or in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Or in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaking to his church in Thyatira. He says, and I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. You understand there was a sin problem in the church at Thyatira. And when Jesus was reproving them, he said, let me tell you something. It's not only about the filth of what your hands have committed, but I'm the one who searches hearts and minds. That's what Jesus says. Know this, that everything you think in your heart and everything you do in your life is open and laid bare before our God and Father. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and following. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If you don't know this about God, he knows every single thought you think before you even think them. That's how complete God's knowledge is. So I want to encourage you with this. Don't deceive yourself. By, by thinking that God does not know what you're thinking. He does. Not only that, but he wants your thoughts to be pure. He wants the motivations and the intentions of your heart 
to be morally pure, to be loving and kind and gracious. Listen, if you're cooking your husband's dinner because you know you ought to love him and serve him, but inside your heart you're just boiling and festering because of that thing he did or said, (laughs) well, your heart's not really in the service now, is it? I'm giving you that as an example. Okay? And here's here by that I'm saying, listen, God wants the intentions of your heart to be pure. So, so don't think that God's pleased because you're cooking the dinner. That's what I'm saying. And husbands, you obviously realize this goes both ways. Especially when you're cooking. <laughs> Hey, that's a good way you can serve her. Make a sacrifice. I got one amen. I would have thought I heard the choir of angels. Or maybe you don't want your husband to cook. Uh, I made another funny. Yeah, here's where we were. If you're cooking the food and the heart's not right, God is not pleased by your duty. Your duty is empty unless your heart is pure. Are you with me? So what am I saying? I'm saying change your heart. Humble yourself. Let God's love permeate your heart. Let it come in and change your motivations. Let your heart be pure in everything you do. Paul's thought of them having pure and holy hearts and abounding love is seen in view of the Lord's second coming. He states, May you be without blame and holiness before our God and Father. What? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So these prayers, he's praying for this sanctification, for this abounding love and for these pure hearts. He's saying, in view of the coming of our Lord Jesus. The idea is, God make their hearts pure. God make their hearts loving so that when Christ shows up, they're a loving and a pure people. Are you with me? He states, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, implying that our abounding love and holiness ought to be rightly established before our God and Father when he comes. Now, the coming referred to here is the Greek parousia, which Paul mentions at the end of every chapter in 1 Thessalonians. He constantly kept them apprised that everything they do is focused on the hope on the hope of the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Now, I wanted to point this out to you. If you have your Bible, look in 1 Thessalonians. I mentioned to you this to you before, but I want you to see it again. Because as we move toward the end of this book, it's really focused on an eschatological theme. But if you start back at verse uh, chapter 1, I want you to see this. In every single chapter of this book, 
at the end of the chapter, Paul speaks about the second coming of Christ. In chapter 1 and verse 10, there he says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And at the end of chapter 2 in verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You see what he's doing? He keeps reminding them that Jesus is coming. He keeps reminding them that Jesus is coming. And family, let me tell you something. You need to be encouraged to know that Jesus is coming. If you don't keep your eyes focused on that, you are going to lose your hope, man. You are going to find yourself trudging through the mire of this world without the encouragement you need to carry on. Because this place is broke bad. And many times we get tired of trudging through this mud. Amen? And our hearts get downcast. But let me tell you something. It will not always be this way. This is just a light and momentary affliction. This thing is all going to be over soon. And I mean soon and very soon. This life is what? Nothing but a vapor. It's here today and what? Gone tomorrow. Are you with me? Listen, it's coming soon. He is coming soon. And he's going to fix it. And when he fixes it, he's going to fix it right. And it will be fixed right forever and ever and ever, world without end. Are you with me? And you need to have your hope firmly fixed on that. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, look, you're our hope, our joy, our crown. Isn't it even you in the presence of our Lord that is coming? Or chapter 3, verse 11. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Right? Or in chapter 4, verses 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, um, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Amen. Each time he builds and he gives more. Right? And then again in chapter 5. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Amen? So, here we are in chapter 3, verse 11. Look, here comes Paul again. The Lord Jesus is coming with all of his saints. He constantly kept telling them that. Here the apostles' prayer is that they are morally pure at the soon coming of Christ, who is in fact coming with all his saints. The term here for saints is the Greek hagios, meaning holy ones. Christ is coming with all his holy ones, and the church is to be prepared by being holy for his arrival. Now, it is disputed whether these holy ones are actually men or angels. Christ is said to come with his saints, but also for his saints. 
a tension which is relieved because saints simply means holy ones and can refer to either men or angels. Notwithstanding, the second coming of Christ is said to be attended by angels in many places. And just so that you knew that was true, I gave you a list of scriptures that say that very clearly. Not only that, in some of those places, they are called holy ones, hagios. Okay? So, I'll just also tell you, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, there Paul says that the Lord is, uh, that, that uh, God's going to give you relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What's the point? The point is, is that when Jesus comes, he's coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Okay? So, back to verse 11 of chapter 3. What does he mean when he says that the Lord is coming with all his saints? I'll tell you what I think he means. I think he means men and angels. Because I do believe he is coming with his saints. And I do believe he's coming with the angels of heaven. Uh, Of course, those are technical details we'll get into as we start diving into this more and more. See here then that we ought to be preparing our hearts before God, for he is coming soon to judge and to reward. Note well the goal here for the Christian church, abounding love and morally pure hearts. It is for this great end that the apostle here interceded on their behalf. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and Father, O Lord, we so desire to abound in your love, to increase in love. Lord, so that our hearts would be established blameless in holiness before you. God, may your holy love burn in our hearts like a fire. May we be so consumed with loving you and loving others that it causes our life to be a fragrant sacrifice unto you. Lord, help us to see clearly the goal of our lives, the purpose for which you made us and fill us with your love, Father. We thank you for this rich word. We pray that it would overcome our hearts more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.